It was a cold October morning in Wilson, Kentucky, when the mutilated body of Nancy Lowe was found on the side of the road. Although some suspects were investigated, no one has been held responsible for the death of my cousin. It is my hope that this podcast will bring us closer to finding Nancy's killer. Ten years later. On October 11th, Nancy's body was laid to rest. It was truly a beautiful service. We had the church choir sing Nancy's favorite hymn, I'll Fly Away, as she was lowered into the earth, right next to her father's and mother's grave. I think the thing that made me cry the most was seeing just how many lives Nancy's had touched. Her classmates at the teaching school, nearly everyone who worked at the radio station, her coworkers and managers at the swan shop, nearly the entire police department, many of the kids she had taught at school as well as their parents. It was an outpouring of love from the people of Wilson for my cousin. And although it was a funeral, I have to admit, I felt peaceful and heavenly. The October air was crisp, but not chilly. The sky was infinitely blue, as if to remind us that the emptiness in this world left by Nancy could be filled by something grand and powerful. Those who couldn't make the service were notable. Ryan Faulkner was not in attendance, although we weren't aware he was being interrogated for Nancy's murder at the time. Also not at the service was Fraser Snow, Nancy's stepfather. I will say, though, his absence was a relief. We wanted the day to be full of love and peace, and it was, for a while. But then came the sirens. I had thought some of the police department were arriving late to the service, but when we heard the slamming of doors and hurried footprints approaching us, we realized they were here on business. My friend Robin shrieked. I think she realized what we were all thinking. Nancy's murderer had come to her funeral and stood among us. Everyone began to separate from each other, becoming suspicious of their friends and family. But no one expected Officer Ross to come up to Hal Avery and take him away. Hal didn't resist or fight the arrest, just tried to explain to his son what was happening as he trailed behind his father, tears in his eyes. Chief Jay explained they were taking Hal to the station for questioning, but most people see someone in the back of a police car and assume a guilty verdict. My parents offered to take care of Eli for the day while Hal was at the station. And, if I'm being honest, I'm kind of glad I got to talk to Eli. It was clear the poor boy needed someone to talk to. He sat in a deflated slouch with his hands tucked under his legs as we rode in the back of my parents' car. We talked about school, music, what he was going to do for Halloween. Eli said he was too old to go trick-or-treating, and I laughed and told him not to pass up the free candy. Eventually, I don't know how, the subject drifted towards his father. Eli asked if I thought his father would get in trouble for what happened to Nancy. I said I didn't think he had anything to do with her, that they were just bringing him to the station to answer questions. I honestly didn't know what to say, but that didn't seem to make Eli feel any better. I asked Eli if he thought his father could do something like that. I think I asked him this to calm him down, make him realize that his father doing something so horrible to Nancy was absurd. 
But Eli just sat there quietly, biting his lip and knocking his shoes together. I started to answer for Eli, saying something like, of course he wouldn't. But Eli interrupted me and whispered, Dad wasn't home that night. He said he was going on a date. Then he put his pointer finger up to his mouth, as if to say that this was a secret between the two of us. I had so many questions, yearning for more context, more information. My parents had just pulled into our driveway, and Eli seemed nervous about them hearing his admission, so I nodded silently, and we didn't speak of it again. Eli spent most of the day at our house. We ate ice cream, I finally convinced him to go trick-or-treating with me, and gossiped about our favorite and least favorite teachers at the middle school. Then, at around three in the afternoon, Chief Jay showed up to take Eli home. I remember Eli asking why his dad didn't come pick him up. Chief Jay said he was still at the station. This was a considerable understatement. Hal had seemingly manipulated the entire investigation in order to frame Paul Swan. He admitted to planting the binoculars at the crime scene, knowing it would focus the investigation on Paul. Apparently, the binoculars were a gift from Paul to Hal's late wife. Mary was an avid birdwatcher. At the time, the mistake of having Paul's initials on the binocular strap was a funny in-joke between Mary and Paul. Hal admitted that after Mary's death, he hoped he could use this to his advantage. Hal was also aware of the fact that Paul owned a small plot of land in the Wilson Woods having looked into any and all parts of Paul's life after Mary's death. When the body of Nancy was found on the land he knew was owned by Paul Swan, Hal admitted that he had snapped. In his grief-stricken mind, Hal knew that Paul must have had something to do with Nancy's murder. And even if he didn't, he deserved to be punished for what happened to Mary. This confession troubled investigators because although Hal had admitted to tampering with the crime scene, he had no idea what had happened to Nancy. I have asked Officer Ross about what it was like to interrogate his friend and coworker about subjects like this. Ross said that we had gone fishing together. I had babysat Eli when him and Mary were going through things. And seeing this officer of the law I respected crack open and reveal himself to be a liar, and maybe worse, was painful. I wasn't looking forward to bringing up Ryan and Nancy, but, you know, I had to. The topic of Nancy was a touchy one with Hal. He kept saying they were good friends, that Nancy was there for him after Mary's death, that the two were connected when it came to the loss of loved ones. Officer Ross said that he continued to push Hal on his relationship with Nancy, finally revealing Ryan Faulkner's accusation. This drove Hal to ask for a lawyer or to release him. Hal Avery was arrested for tampering with evidence and offered a defense attorney. With the help of his attorney, a woman named Gloria Barnes, Hal Avery admitted to the charge of tampering with evidence, but denied any involvement with Nancy other than a friendship. There was further accusations from Miss Barnes of the police department's inability to properly question and arrest Ryan Faulkner, the boyfriend of the deceased, whose personal effects were found at the scene of the crime. This began the discussion of alibi. A police report identifies Ryan at Crow's Nest at 11.30 p.m. 
Avery refused to provide an alibi, with Miss Barnes arguing that without evidence to place him at the scene of the crime or motive, Hal Avery was just as guilty-looking as the newly released Paul Swan. This is when investigators revealed another part of Ryan Faulkner's testimony. Ryan mentioned that one of the patients he had met with on the afternoon of October 3rd was Hal Avery. Hal had been a patient of Ryan for nearly 10 months. Ryan, during his testimony, actually laughed when he mentioned that Nancy had convinced Hal to talk to Ryan in the first place. Ryan didn't feel comfortable continuing to talk about his patient, but he said it was conceivable that Hal could have stolen his phone during their session. During his testimony, however, Ryan also mentioned that in his opinion, Hal would most likely have murdered Paul Swan rather than murder Nancy and frame Paul Swan for it. Hal's attorney was unconvinced the department could prove he had stolen Ryan's phone and refused to have her client answer further questions on the subject of Nancy's murder. However, since Hal had admitted to the charge of tampering with evidence, he would have to spend the night in jail until a hearing. Eli called me that night when he had heard the news about what happened to his dad. Chief Jay, who was now taking care of Eli, had told him everything. Eli was devastated. He kept saying that he wanted his dad to come home. He wanted everything to go back to normal. I knew how that felt. The world happening around you, and you sit back powerlessly, unable to stop it. I tried my best to console him, but there's only so much a 16-year-old can say about the world. I guess, even now, I don't know what I would say. Eventually, Eli hung up, still in tears. And maybe it was out of desperation or temporary insanity, but I called Nancy's home phone, wanting to hear her voice on the answering machine. It didn't help. I've been told hearing the voice of a loved one after they're gone is supposed to make you feel better, but it only made me feel guilty and confused. I hung up the phone, when suddenly, just as I let go of the receiver, it rang. Stupidly, I picked up the phone and asked if it was Nancy. There was a dry laugh on the other line, followed by heavy breathing. I asked who it was. The person on the other end of the line was catching their breath and then responded, It's Mr. Snow, Nancy's stepfather. I hung up the phone in embarrassment and anger and stormed off into my room, my parents asking what was wrong. They answered when the phone rang again and had a very long talk with Fraser Snow. He had apparently been hospitalized after having trouble breathing and suffering from fainting spells. Mr. Snow was a chain smoker and suffered from emphysema. My parents had extended an invitation to him for Nancy's funeral, and although he was unable to get out of bed due to his health, he had sent something to us in the mail. A way of helping us deal with the loss of Nancy. He said it should arrive via priority mail the next day. I'll be honest. That night I felt safe for the first time in a while. I never told Eli, 
But after the police took Hal away, and after Eli told me what Chief Jay had told him, I thought they had finally captured Nancy's killer. I thought the justice had been served. I even played Nancy's music box before going to sleep, drifting off to delicate chimes. The next day, October 12th, my father checked the mailbox at around noon. He brought in two things, a small, poorly wrapped, off-white package and a large white priority mail envelope. We opened the envelope first, the label on the front reading Fraser Snow's name. Inside was Nancy's birth certificate and an old photo of a 12-year-old Nancy dressed up as Sherlock Holmes for Halloween. A magnifying glass held up to her big smiling face and the deerstalker hat made out of two baseball caps laid on top of each other. We prepared to call Fraser to thank him for such a beautiful gift when our attention was brought to the second package. It had no postage or label, no indication as to who had sent it to us. My parents found it odd too, wondering who had sent it and why. Perhaps it was Fraser, but it didn't seem attached to the envelope. I unwrapped the parcel, revealing a small hand-cranked music box surrounded by dead flies. Owl flies. In disgust, I dropped everything in my hands. The music box, flies, and wrapping paper fell to the ground. That's when I realized the wrapping paper had something written on it. The wrapping paper was actually Nancy's teaching school ID. It had been stained and exposed to weather and blood, creating a yellowish-white look. And written in black marker over Nancy's information was a messy handwriting that simply said, Fly away. I think you can guess what song the music box played. This couldn't have been Hal Avery. I don't know who could have done this. It could have been anyone at Nancy's funeral. Nearly the entire town. People I thought I could trust. People I thought loved Nancy. Any of them. Anyone. We gave everything to the police. They couldn't identify fingerprints. They couldn't identify the handwriting. It didn't matter. We didn't feel safe in our home anymore. We didn't feel safe in our town. My parents and I packed everything up and we left, moved across the country to California to escape whoever did this. That was 10 years ago. Nothing like that has happened in Wilson, Kentucky since 2008. So I moved back. I've been back in Wilson for a couple of months now. I've reached out and tried to interview everyone who had anything to do with this case. Try to look at the crime from every angle I can think of. And I'm not leaving until I finally figure out what happened to Nancy.